Welcome to Transit Matters, episode six. We uh, we're joined with the with the regular panel again today, and we have a special guest, Ari Opsivit, who is the uh, the face behind Amateur Planner uh, website, which uh, has a lot of great stuff on there. Um, so, Ari, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, we also have the uh, let's introduce the rest of us. Uh, I'm Jeremy Mendelson. I'm a transit planner and advocate. Oh, and I'm Mark Ibunya. Um, I'm the uh, main curator of the blog, and uh, I uh, am a amateur transit advocate for. I've been a tra- amateur tra- amateur transit advocate for the last five years. Wow, it's getting really late. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm Josh Fairchild. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm uh, I work in commercial real estate. I'm a transit enthusiast, and I hope to be contributing to the uh, transit advocacy efforts here. Cool, and um, you can find out more about the show and uh, the blog and everything else at transitmatters.info, and um, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. Um, so we're gonna gonna quickly go through some news items today, uh, things that have been in the news, and uh, and then we will uh, we will plug along. Um, so yeah, so we what do we got in the news first? Um, we got the Green Line extension has uh, received funding from the federal government. Basically, the federal government has agreed to take on uh, the match. Um, it's not quite 50%. I think it's like 43% or something. Um, but the project is funded, and it, it is moving along. So uh, that is exciting. And just to reiterate, this is not some sort of surprise that the media is pulling off, like, oh, my goodness, we weren't expecting that, or some groundbreaking thing, uh, or at least nearly as groundbreaking as, as uh, the media is making out to be, as if as if the Green Line has been, been deliberately being, delaying itself. Uh, we have legitimately been waiting for the feds to finalize their grant process, and they've actually been waiting for the Green Line project engineering team to get to a certain design phase, uh, design phase where they can legitimately say, we have a project, we need you to fund this, and this is how much we need. So, yeah. So Although I will say, Mark, that if someone was listening to this podcast a few episodes and they had heard you talking about how the federal government would not want to give the MBTA money anymore because we are having trouble with our debt and covering operating costs and things like that. They might be, have been surprised to hear about this. Right. So. Well, that's again. That's that. That speaks to that same that same vein of reasoning. Is we're not going to give you that money until we know that you are ready for go time. So that's that's that was what we were wait what the feds were waiting for. Cool. So we made it. So that's good. Um, also in the news, we uh, well. So the Salem. Uh, intermodal Transportation Center, I think they're calling it. Intermodal. Intermodal, yes. <laughs> yeah, Which intermodal. basically means it's a parking garage. There's a bike rack out front, that's right. And um, I was, there was also the Beverly Commuter Rail Station had a very similar project at uh, Beverly Depot. Um, I think it was Beverly Depot. There was also one out in western Massachusetts along the Knowledge Corridor that opened up a inter- oh, right. quote-unquote yes. intermodal transportation center, uh, which is actually, uh, in pictures, looks like a, just a giant parking garage. Yeah, so that's basically what these things are. These are basically big parking lots, yeah. and uh, we did want to spend a minute or two talking about this. Um, this was built by the MBTA in Salem and also the one in Beverly and maybe a couple of the closer ones. Um, this is... I have this here somewhere. Oh, so it's 715 parking spaces. Um, it's a brick and glass parking garage. It's all bells and whistles. Um, they, oh, yeah, they, they made uh, zip car spots. Wow, big deal. Plug in um, electric. Yep. Yeah, plug in electric, bicycles, um, and they have a bus. I, I haven't seen their bus facility because I, I'd be interested. There's, there's <laughs> actually a bunch of bus routes up there in Salem. They're not, I mean, there's a couple express routes, and then there's some local ones that are kind of, you know, not, not hugely popular. I mean, well, I shouldn't say that, but the ridership is not, I mean, they're up in Salem, you know. Sounds, like, a, sounds like it's time for a field trip, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what do you, I mean, basically the question we posed here in, um, in our agenda today is, uh, you know, what do we, what do we think about this? 
What yeah, what kind of region do we want to be? What's the larger the larger policy problem seems to be that everyone's saying sustainable. I know that Mapsi is really trying to drive this hard with the communities in the uh, in the Mapsi area, including Salem. But um, the way that things are being strategized and things actually being built seems to be different from that. Um, the, so the, again, the garage is owned and I believe was constructed by the T. Uh, and according to uh, policy, policy analysts at the MBT Advisory Board, um, it is financially more expedient in the short term to install parking, um, but obviously financially more expedient in the long term to hire a developer and reap ongoing uh, revenue benefits uh, from rent and all that sort of fun stuff, uh, which is what uh, WMATA in Washington, D.C. does. Um, um, that's the only way that, that transit systems are sustainable and quote-unquote profitable outside of, the, outside of the U.S., like Hong Kong Metro, uh, Hong Kong MTR, and Japan. It's all about developing on your land and building a ridership at your station and not just having people say, hey, come on, drive to our station and use the commuter rail, which is, you know, uh, not a, I don't know. If that, is, that, is that really what we wanted as a, as a region? So... Uh, kind of similarly looping that into what's going on here in Boston, um, free parking is being offered in Boston on Saturdays. So the implication is that people that we want people to drive into Boston or through Boston, like if you live in Boston, to go drive downtown um, and to make it easier for you to do that, to shop during the holidays, because we know everybody gets to Newbury Street by driving there, right? I so, wish I had a clip of George Bush right now it's just saying, uh, you know, it was after September 11th, he's like, go shopping. As we work with Congress in the coming year to chart a new course in Iraq and strengthen our military to meet the challenges of the 21st century, we must also work together to achieve important goals for the American people here at home. This work begins with keeping our economy growing. And I encourage you all to go shopping more. Go shopping, yeah. Go go shopping in your car because we know what happens uh, when everyone's trying to go turning around the block time after uh, you know five times, ten times around the block to get free parking. Well, but there's no. If you look at downtown Boston when they're charging a dollar or two per hour, there's tons of parking. Oh, no, no, there's no parking anyway. Right. It's not like it makes any difference. I, I think if you look at the picture that you supplied us with your mark, I mean, it says on this on the on the Happy Holidays parking sign, it says. Mayor Walsh and the city of Boston wish you happy holidays. I think that's the entire point of this campaign because, as Ari points out, there's no additional parking available simply because they have these signs. And they're still enforcing a two-hour limit. So I think most people's calculus as far as you know how they're going to go downtown should probably come out about the same. Maybe it'll get some people in the suburbs that would go shopping at Burlington Mall or something right. like that to decide to drive in. I think they're going to have a horrible experience. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> if they decide to do that and yeah. not take you know some transit coming in or something. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's lots of par- spots usually left. They're probably going to end up parking in a garage. Yeah. You know, is, is the end of it. And I think... Um, I, Go ahead. I don't. I don't think so because uh, the calculus. I, I, I do understand that that it's it's like what's the difference between a dollar and free? Um, it seems to make it seems to make a whole lot of difference, at, uh, at least in terms of people's willingness to circle around the block and wait for a one dollar space or even a free space, especially a free space. Um, as opposed to let's spend sixteen dollars for the day or you know five dollars for the hour in a structure. Um, we Donald Shoup has, has been actually really great yeah. about popularizing this this idea that well, not even popularizing the idea but showing research that shows or, or producing research that shows that people will do this. IBM has also put, uh, released data that shows that 33% of traffic in cities is 
people driving around the block uh, if you don't have good pol- uh, parking policy in place. So I, I guess more more to the point, uh, my issue is that again, kind of like kind of like the way that we're building parking at these commuter rail stations, we're kind of by saying come park for free as a gift to you as a driver. It's it's like legitimizing and and kind of blessing that type of behavior by saying here look we're we're gifting you this this free parking because you deserve it as a as a shopper we know that that you and your in your car are going to are so valuable to our our business community that uh, we want to give you that gift of free parking. Well, I want to I want to loop back to Salem for a little bit because I I agree with everything you said there except you know, and first of all, when I first saw the headlines about these three parking garages, I thought, oh my gosh, I thought that we were past the days of park and rides. I thought that was back in the 80s and early 90s. Um, but, you know, I took a close look on Google Maps at the Salem Garage, and it's in the middle of, of downtown Salem, basically. So this isn't some suburban garage that's like Route 128 in the middle of nowhere, or one of these, you know, orange lines up up north that's kind of, you know, Wellington or something like that. And it, it looks like it only has enough spots for a third of the daily boardings. So yes. <laughs> even though it was almost a doubling of the current size. So, so I'm, I'm seeing that now. So I, it's not the normal park and ride that we're used to. I'm still disappointed that this is the way the T chose to spend their money and the state's money and the federal government's right. money. Because I think the best thing to do, the best way to increase those boardings and have them not be park and rides is to instead have built a couple hundred par- uh, apartments on the same site, yes. you know, and there's still room for that. I saw there's a, there's apartments across the tracks. I don't know why that. I'm not sure why they don't put out those kind of developer um, RFPs and yeah. request those kind of proposals because it, nobody wants to see just a big square parking garage. It's it's a, it's centuries old wisdom that that Japan has been doing for yep. for uh, well for about a century now or over a century and it's not a it's not a cultural difference of oh Japanese are more train minded than we are it's it's about well what is the infrastructure that we give people so uh, and and that's the whole that's the whole idea of our of our advocacy and the other reason I'm disappointed <laughs> is because I'm reading uh, you know talking about Donald Shub I'm reading Jeff Speck's chapter in Walkable City right now yeah. that's completely based on basic on and, and Donald Shoup's book, and he's talking about how all these parking garages are built by municipalities with bonds, and they barely, they don't meet projections, they barely cover mm-hmm. um, the, the debt um, that's required, and so, um, you know, it just doesn't seem to be a smart thing moving forward. We do have a lot of private parking garages, and that that's even more of a, a kind of a black hole in terms of information. We, we don't have, we it is a vacuum, and we don't have any information about about them, I don't think they're willing to. I don't think they'll ever be willing to to release that information to the public or even share that with with uh, BDT. But I, we've got that's a that's another show. The whole whole BDT and parking policy. So <laughs> we'll definitely circle back yeah. to garages in future shows. Yeah, so. yeah, sure. Looking looking at Salem and Beverly, um, I think that they might be sort of serving what the constituents in those cities want. Uh, in in as much as if the, the people who live in the city who probably have some approval process say, oh, we want somewhere to park because the parking lot's full. And so you get that pressure with, and, and the pressure of, oh, we don't want more people because there are going to be more cars. As anachronous as all of that is, that's the kind of, uh, the, the, of, of, of environment you're in, and then that, that leads to the garages like they have getting built. Absolutely. Oh, and that's why agree. we exist. It's exactly <laughs> They're giving people exactly what they asked yeah. for, and yeah. I wish they would tweak it and give people what they asked for 
plus uh, new housing yeah. on these yeah. sites. I mean, it's just it's just such a shame when I see this in these older New England towns. I come from I come from uh, the Midwest. I see these older New England towns and with these compact Beautiful. town centers that are completely walkable, and then we're going to build a huge parking garage. Yeah. Which is kind of, I, I may have mentioned this before, I mean, this is kind of one of the problems with the way we've developed our commuter rail system, and I obviously continue to do so, is, yeah. is that, you know, we've built, we've abandoned a lot of these old town centers that the train line goes through in favor of building like a Plymouth is an example. Yeah, and, and, right, exactly, Plymouth. Plymouth. Yeah. It's like Ashland, what, the whole Worcester yeah. Right. It's like you build, so you, so you, build a, you build a big parking ride, and instead of, instead of attracting people from downtown Plymouth, you know what you get is you get as many people as you have spots for. Well, and I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that because it, it also works against what we want in our transit system. Because even though that's what suburban commuters are asking for is these big parking lots, I've heard from at least half a dozen um, commuters that that maybe now drive instead of take the train. Yes. Or they take the train, but they're still going to complain about the fact that they say, "Yeah, I take the train." But there's no it's, parking. It's a madhouse. Well, it's not that there's no parking. It's that when they get to the parking lot, the traffic jam is now in the parking lot trying to get out of the parking lot. <laughs> as they say, basically, everybody gets to the, they get off the train and everybody runs for their cars and tries to start the car as fast as they can and run, run over people so they have to wait 20 minutes to get out of the parking lot. Yep. So basically, we move the traffic jam from like downtown to like you know <laughs> the commuter parking lot. And obviously, that's because it's a parking ride. Yep. And so people yep. say, well, I might as well drive as opposed to wait yep. in the traffic jam in the parking lot. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, Ash. I think Ashland is a great example. They have a downtown center. You have, you know, I'm sure there was a train station there 50 years ago, and they put the parking lot a mile to the west where there's a big parking lot. It's not scalable. You can fill as many parking spaces, and that's about it. Versus if you have a parking garage downtown in a downtown area, that can be used on weekends for people parking, you know, going to a store there. It can be used for... Uh, it can be used for transportation, but then it's also something that people can walk to. You don't want to, you, if, if you can incorporate it in. Um, and th- going back to your point about uh, Madhouse, if you take, I've taken the um, express train out to Seth Acton a few times and gotten off there, and that is the, you know, a huge parking lot in the express from Porter, which does that in about 30 minutes, which is much faster than driving at that time of day. You get out, and 250 people get off the train, and they all go into their cars, and there's a bunch of people waiting to pick them up, and it's 10 or 15 minutes just to get out of the lot. So that's certainly something that yep. that people factor in. And then if the train takes 30 minutes, but it's 10 minutes to get out, that's a 40-minute trip versus a 30-minute trip if you can walk. So, yep. so again, uh, just final words. Uh, it, it Again, it, it, it legitimizes. So people say they want it. It legitimizes that behavior, and then it, it propagates further in, into into this, this calculus of, oh, how... How am I going to get to work today? I'm going to drive to work directly downtown, or or am I going to take? Am I going to park at a, a commuter rail stop, gamble on on getting a space, or you know, like oh, I've already done the calculus and I'm probably not going to get a space. One last quick thing on that is that, that you actually the other thing is that if you if you require people to access the, the station by car, then you require them to have a car. Yes, and you're essentially owning yes. a car for. It's yeah. like we talked about the, the sunk cost of owning a car, right? It's yeah. like you, you're essentially owning a car that you need for that, and, and you know you're paying all the expenses. Of, well, why not? Why, yeah. why not use it? Especially so, the weekend. And then and then going again, going continuing with with people saying, "Oh, I want this." Uh, Mapsy again can fr- from the top down can say, uh, town town plan town planners or or or, uh, or leadership can say. We ha- we have made this agreement with ourselves to 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 Mapsy to the to the region to say we we have we have these plans about downtown livability, so we cannot only build a parking space and I mean parking lot, and so that's that's something that can be done from the top down, even if it does sound kind of 
I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, what, what's the right word for that? Agenda. Tw- what is it? Agenda Twenty One. You yeah. Agenda, it, it sounds a bit Agenda Twenty One, <laughs> but I mean, legitimately, that's uh, it's it's a it's a top down and bottom up approach. We're the bottom yeah. up, and you know, the best thing that we can hope for is that Mapsy will continue driving that home. So. And you keep saying Mapsy. That's a term that I've never heard before. I always thought MAPC, which I think is what you're talking about. Which is the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So just so the listener understands. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and so anyway. I know that next we do have to move on. I know that Jeremy wanted to talk about Lyft and Uber um, regulation. Yeah, so uh, I saw I came across this item yesterday that the uh, apparently the Boston City Council is having hearings, and I've been told that Cambridge has as well regarding uh, car well supposed car sharing. They're not really car sharing. These services uh, such as Uber and Lyft, which are basically uh, they're essentially taxi services that you can call or you can access with an online app, um, and you know a lot of times they're cheaper than taxis. Um, so people like them because they can they can use the app, um, but they're also um, you know they're not regulated in really any way, and so you know there are there are a lot of issues that are being caused by Uber and Lyft that the the council is sort of attempting to deal with, and uh, on the one hand you you sort of have, you have a lot of users who are, are very supportive, um, on the other hand you have uh, drivers for Uber and Lyft that have you know it's been in the media many times that the drivers apparently are, are being cheated you know they're being called independent contractors and it's a typical situation you know i had this with the pedicab it's the same exact thing they promise you you're an independent contractor you know they you have to make all the investment take all the risk and oh you'll make a ton of money and then it doesn't pan out and but now you're left um with that and then i guess on the third hand is you have um the taxi drivers who are you know the people who have put you know a lot of investment you know say what you want about taxi drivers you know cutting you off on your bike or whatever um but you know they they put a lot of investment in in their time and, and money into having a cab and then and they, they have a lot of regulations that they have to deal with, and then to to now have Uber and Lyft coming in and, and just you know basically doing the same thing, but not having to abide by any of the regulations. Even though the regulation system is is completely broken uh, by many accounts, um, I think something needs to be done, and it's not clear entirely what that is. It's going to be a heated, definitely going to be a heated conversation. I think it could probably even get heated in this room from what it sounds like we talked about even before we started the podcast tonight, but. Um, you know, one thing you did mention is that the taxi drivers have investment in, in their taxi, and actually the problem is that they don't. A lot of them, they can't actually afford to buy the medallions. So these are independent contractors also. Um, and I think they do have to go through some training more than, well, we think it's more than Uber drivers do. That's one of the problems is that we just don't exactly know <clears throat> what Uber is requiring of their drivers and what Lyft is requiring. It may, they may do a better job than what the Hackney division does. And I think one of the, one of the big questions I have is for some reason because we're regulating you know, Cambridge and Boston are regulating their taxi drivers. For some reason, the Hackney Division, the city council, the taxi driver trying to say, well, that equates to better quality. I mean, I just think, let's just ask a dozen drivers what their, or riders what their experience has been. I think they would tell you they're getting a better quality experience in Uber and Lyft. And I think that's sad because I think if we are regulating it, um, somebody has taken taken their eye off, off the prize there because they're, we're not getting – we're not talking about like London taxi drivers here. You know, who have a ridiculous test that they have to pass, proving how they know about everything about London. Um, Maybe we should. <laughs> so, you know, I hope something good comes out of this because I, I think that uh, I think that there does need to be something that happens. You know, with around this entire industry, um, and something needs to happen with taxis in Boston because they're not get, they're not getting the job done. And I feel really bad for the drivers that are part of that system. Another thing I wanted to add is, is um, and I've talked to a couple of people who are, I want to have a show. We want to do a show at some point focusing on the taxi industry. 
um, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, and, and one thing that, that's sort of I've been sort of working out over the past, you know, I don't know, a couple of years, just thinking about this is is that I've always thought of taxis as kind of part of the sustainable transportation picture, right? You know, they're yes. sort of enabling people to not have cars, and they're, you know, and and I, I think what le- kind of led me down that road is is my thinking that you know when do I use a taxi? Well, I probably haven't taken a taxi in about three years or something, but I would only take a taxi when you know I was in a big rush or for some reason you know I missed the bus and the next one was a half an hour and I had somewhere important to be, something like that. Whereas or a place I couldn't get to by transit. Uh, whereas what, one thing I learned, you know, working in the pedicab and just talking to a lot of ta- taxi drivers. It, is that the, for the most part, people who use taxis just don't want to walk. Um, so that could be, you know, could be because of rain or something. But in, in many cases, it's, you know, you give the example of, uh, you know, a lot of people who live in Back Bay, you know, people who are, like, really rich and live in Back Bay. And they just, the taxi is just their personal car. It's just that it's easier for them to not have to park something somewhere. Yeah, you know? or it's, you know, your in-laws come in from out of town and they don't want to mess with the subway or whatever it is. Right. Or, or you're so carrying something really big. Exactly. Like a right. box of board games, like yeah. one of my friends. Or I was so running late for my son's birthday party and yeah. it was the middle of days and I just wanted to get there, you know, just walk out the front door of the office and get there. Right. So what I'm what I'm getting at with, with, with the, these examples and, and others, you know, you can talk about whether somebody really needs it or not. It's, it's just that the taxis and, and now especially Uber and Lyft, which are cheaper and, you know, you can get it on your phone or whatever, it's, it's encouraging car trips, really. And if we, you know, if we didn't have taxis, we would see a lot fewer car trips. Now, I don't know that that's the solution is to just get rid of all taxis or it might be just charge the hell out of them or what, but... Um, you know, thinking about taxis and how they they create a lot more trips, and I sort of wonder how Uber and Lyft is. Are they just stealing taxi, you know, existing taxi rides, or are they taking tr- a lot more trips away from the yeah. bus? You know, I think that's a really something just occurred to me. We didn't discuss this before we started recording. Was the fact that um, now? So looping back to question one and how we've said we were going to repeal the gas tax, and we need transportation revenue from somewhere. Well, the, the indexing of the, the gas index. Tax. Sorry, the indexing of the gas tax. God, heaven forbid if we. <laughs> Repeal the gas tax completely. Uh, I know some people would be happy, but Please. Uh, the uh, the the, no. the fact. So what happens in London is taxis are legitimized because there is the congestion pricing, the road pricing. Um, so with road pricing, you reduce the number of private automobiles, but there is still like a, a quota of of taxis that can be on the road, which I guess. With the advent, with the advent of, of of Lyft and Uber and all those other services, you you could technically just have everybody driving as a taxi in the city. Um, but uh, I mean, it's not cost effective to just become a taxi driver if unless you have a lifestyle where you're committing to that, uh, and that is your main main revenue, and you're just going around getting trips. That 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 idea of um, of a conge- of a road pricing scheme could kind of balance that out. That whole are we encouraging more more road trips uh, in the sense that, yeah, we'd have more taxi trips, but we would also have considerably fewer private automobiles just clogging up the roads and also causing issues for cyclists. So if so, I and think the regulations... I'm sorry? And pedestrians and, as well. And pedestrians. So absolutely, because then then the, the issue becomes, uh, it's a two-sided thing. We need regulation on the one side to uh, reduce... Uh, 
private automobile traffic, uh, private automobile mileage within the city uh, through road pricing. And then on the other side, uh, pr- better regulation of these these newer um, Web 3.0 uh, hyperlocal services like Lyft and Uber uh, to make sure that, yeah, they're not block- blocking lanes, that they are held accountable, that you can hold them accountable in the same way that you can a, uh, a liveried or medallion uh, cab. So, you know, it's... And I, I do want to, um, and I think Ari has something to say about this too, but I want to take, uh, you know, opposition to what, what you were saying earlier, Jeremy, that you were saying that this is encouraging or inducing more car trips, um, but I think having, you know, having taxis, having Uber, having Lyft, uh, having Zipcar, things like that, it it may induce more car trips, but re- but it also uh, induces people to think more about how they might not need a car at all, and people are more comfortable not owning a vehicle if they feel like they can, yeah. if they really need to, they can hop in in a car and get somewhere quickly. And once they have made that decision, then I think that the the higher marginal cost of taking a taxi trip or Uber or whatever it is, the, the cost is higher marginally than what it would be if you owned a car. Because when you own a car, you know, unless you have to fill up that trip, you pretty much feel like it costs zero. Right. But once you don't own the car, then you got to think, well, do I want to pay for the taxi? Do I want to pay for Uber? Do I want to check out the zip car for a few hours? It changes the calculus. And so it actually, I think, discourages those trips. Yeah. It, it makes the trips possible, but it makes a lot of people be able to be comfortable with not having a car and then they're going to make a very economic decision a true economic decision about whether or not each trip should be taken with transit or with a car right i would say it's sort of like car sharing when when car sharing first came out for people who didn't have cars they drove more and i I worked for a car sharing company yes in cities we did surveys the people who didn't have cars drove more but they didn't drive very much the people who did have cars wound up driving a lot less because every time they were making a trip they were thinking about it yes exactly Um, Going back to Uber, and my, my sort of conspiracy theory is if you look at sort of what is bubbling up from the drivers right now saying, we're not making enough money, they're putting too many cars on the street, is exactly what happened with the cab industry in the, in the 30s when everyone was driving mm-hmm. a cab around um, and there was no regulation. And they put in the medallion system, which, was pro, which they thought of at the time and now have this 80-year-old system, which they can't really get rid of because there's so much value tied to the medallions. My consi- but the, the issues that Lyft and Uber are facing, and I think going to be facing more in the next few years, is exa- exactly what happened with the taxicab industry in, in the 1930s. And I almost feel like cities and towns are looking at, especially the big cities, Boston, Cambridge, New York, San Francisco of the world, are looking at and saying, we can't destroy the medallion system, but Uber can come in and destroy the medallion system. So we might go into like a three to six to eight year jungle of very little regulation they'll pull all the value out of the medallion and then the cities will come in and say, okay, this needs to be regulated and they'll come up with a better system that's more suited towards, you know, 2020 versus 1920. That's a really, so it's a political foil, basically. If you, if you listen to the politicians triangulate themselves around this issue, they say, well, you know, we need to wait and see and things like that. And I have so many constituents, just, just like if you read the, the Globe article, one of the city councilors said, I've got a crazy high stack of, you know, people who have contacted me and they were all in favor of ride sharing, they were all calling in favor of ride Uber sharing. and Lyft. But Uber is not ride sharing. Yeah, let, let, let me point out, I used air quotes yeah. and I mumbled right. Right. So, <laughs> so right. that's the interesting thing is that it puts the, these politicians are in a difficult situation because they, they know they need to do something different with the taxi medallions, but that's such a strong um, that um, the, the union there and the and the the cab owners. The are value just, of the owners, the value of they because right. the, the medallions are real property, so they can't just right. The city can't just destroy have, that. It would be in Boston. I think it's there's 
it's billions of dollars. In New York, it's fifteen billion. What's well, like a million dollars per medallion right yeah. now for Boston? So. Well, it's got its way. It's much less than that now. It is considerably it's less recent. Several hundred thousand. The value has gone down. It's a yeah, lot. Exactly. You couldn't just. You'd have to buy it out or something. They don't have money yeah. for that. So. Well, I think we'll definitely talk a lot more about this subject in the future yeah. as these you know <laughs> hearings go on, and we can talk more about whether you know the, the very theory, even in this room, of whether these things uh, are, are furthering our goal of transit in in the city and in the country, or working against it. So. So. Yeah. Yeah, quickly uh, looping back to uh, the rest of our news, um, quick reminder, Boston Hubway stations are open through December. So if you're a Hubway member or if you just need a ride to get home or to, from from di- different parts of the city, uh, it's a if you're not a member, it's a $101 deposit and $6 day, daily membership and, um, what is it, $85 for the year? Yes, so. $20 a month. It is, um, that is the kind of... A single occupancy vehicle that we support. Yes, absolutely. Um, the it, most of the stations in Boston are being open, and there's a lot of things being moved around. So just check the website. Yes, definitely the check the website. On, the one on my street in Cambridge went away today. Oh, mm. well, I'm okay with it. That feeds us into the last note, which will also help us segue into more of our discussion with Ari here, which is that um, we, for the second October in a row, we had record ridership on the T. Uh, 37.3 million, or more than 37.3 million passenger trips in October 2014, beating the previous record in October 2013 of 36.7 million trips. Um, and this came uh, a few months uh, after the MBTA raised fares by 5%, um, which was something where the you know Beverly Scott, uh, the general manager, was able to say, you know, we have a great product here, and it doesn't matter if we raise the price, people will still use it. So. Um, that'll feed us more into what our had to say. But anybody else want to say anything about that you know, specific topic before we moved on? I was just going to say uh, it, it, um, today I was in downtown Crossing, and I don't usually take the subway in Russia or anymore. Um, it's one of the disadvantages of, of working out in, in the suburbs. Um, and so I, you know, I got off the train at downtown Crossing. It was like 4:45 or something, and um, you know, right in the peak of the peak, kind of. And there was, you know, downtown crossing, and the and the red line is is a, well, and the orange line too. I mean, it's bad because there there's like that one corner where like everybody kind of packs on, and um, you know, and so I was going the southbound red line, and it's you know in the back of the train, and um, apparently, and I was chatting with the with the inspector, or I don't know if he's an inspector, the guy who was there was like help, holding the flashlight, like helping the driver close the door, um, you know, and I was chatting with him after, but ba- I got off the train and it was like a solid. He said he said it was two two and a half minutes um, that. The train was sitting there, it, just because people were, like, couldn't get on. Like people couldn't get out, and they couldn't get on because there was so many people there. And I got I actually got a couple of cool pictures. Maybe I'll put it up in the post. And this, that kind of drove it home to me is is that you know, and everyone said this for a while. And Eric, you mentioned you really mentioned this is that the system is just, I mean, just completely over capacity at this point. And we, you know, and the red line needs more trains. The green line needs like a total upgrade. The, you know, the orange line needs more service. I mean, everything is just like, and and we have these points, these bottleneck points. That I would definitely put that picture up because it's just like it just shows how it's just like the system is just so low capacity right now. Is there a name for that technique, the waving of the flashlight to let the the driver know that we can shut the doors now? Uh, that that's I think that's because when they went to single op, 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 single operators on the trains, uh, they had a bunch of union members who needed jobs, so they. 
Well, <laughs> that's the that's the that's the what people said. The rumor that goes on uh, in, inside the team. But no, the the reason they, they only have those people at a few stations, and there are places where it's you know more of a problem. They installed some video monitors in the front, for, but there's some stations that have a curve. Uh, I think Park Street and Broadway are among them, um, and downtown obviously would be in the back. We there. see them at South Station and Downtown Crossing and State. It's also really, really busy. Where right. they, yeah, extremely helps. busy. They're basically letting the driver know if it's clear. And yeah, that's all it is. It's a it's a it's a concept in, in uh, train safety. You know, where you if you wave the flashlight up and down, that that means that it's you know it's um, okay to go essentially or close the door. And if you wave it you know horizontally or um, left to right, it's, it means that essentially that's what you would do at a train if a train was coming at you and you were like, oh shit, like I didn't you know I'm in the wrong place. You would wave your flashlight and that's supposed to make them stop. If you look at the train signals on the C on the on the um, Beacon Street that where they have the, the separate train signals installed a. Up and down yep. line means go, and a sideways line, ways line means stop. So it's kind of the same kind of thing. Is that sort of a universal signal, I guess? Yep, apparently. So, I mean, anyway, I think this is um, something that we that we wanted to talk about, and uh, I know you brought it up especially, and, and you, you've posted about this quite extensively. And One thing that I, I saw on the, on the website, uh, which, again, amateurplanner.blogspot.com, um, I get that right? Yes. All right, awesome. Um, so, yeah, you said, it, um, then, quote, then there's the green line. It seems that ridership is flat. It might be due to its slow speed, arduous boarding process, arcane rules, lack of traffic priority, or a combination of these factors. Or it could be that it's already basically a capacity, at least as it's currently configured. So, uh, I don't know, maybe you can expand on that and talk about that. Yeah, so, um, they're, they're calling quotes at old blog posts. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, I think it's a combination of all of the above. The the slow speeds are just boarding arcane rules and lack of traffic priority lead to slower overall speeds, which means that you can only get so many trains over the line in a certain amount of time. If you could get the trains, even if you get them over the line on the B line five or six minutes faster, you could add another run, which would increase capacity by five or ten percent. Um, and and I think if you look at the silver line too, I know that you talked to Matt Danish about the ridiculous D Street like where I have a video of me standing in the bus for a minute and a half when nothing happens. And no one's crossing D Street. You're actually looking at, if you hit that, three minutes on that is of the SL2 is about 14% of the run time sitting at that light. If you look at, if you look at the signals on the B line, you're probably looking at 10 or 15% of the run, full run time at signals, plus which you have you know, single door boarding with fare collection. So if you make those changes, you, you, you increase capacity because you can get with the same number of trains, you can get more trains over the line. Um, and, and then they have the rules of, of because a couple people complained, um, I, I went back and forth with someone on Twitter a couple weeks ago about this. Um, a couple people complained, so they said, oh, we're going to shut the doors, we're only going to let people board the front or off the front or whatever those rules are. And he said, oh, well, what is, how much money are they losing on, uh, on fares? And the, the, total, the overall total is they calculate, I think, $16 million a year lost in, in, in fare evasion. Yeah, we've talked about, I've, I've rather posted on the blog about previously about this, 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 this um, kind of mindless uh, pursuit of what is our, oh, we're losing so much revenue from these people. Yeah. Like, you can, to be, to be fair, you can never really truly uh, get a number of those people. Yep. Um, but yeah, these are wild estimates. But yeah. you're also never going to be able to collect every fare. Someone's yeah. going to ride the outside of the train or something. You're never yep. going to get to 100. Yeah. percent And it's not for most of it. It's not worth trying. The amount of effort you need to put in. The amount of money in particular. Money yeah. and effort. Yeah. And and I, then I did some off the cuff calculations. I said if 10 percent of the people are ride of, of T riders or a fare evasion occurs on the above ground green line, et cetera, et cetera. Got to if you can increase the 
if you can increase the speed of the train by it was one minute or five minutes, however long it was, I think for every minute you actually make that much money back in in, in uh, efficiency mm-hmm. because um, it, it yeah, that, that just makes sense. So um, the green line is you know the, and the T goes into well we're going to put transit signal prior you know it's the kind of thing where. It, 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 there's sort of in, in the state that the DOT had everyone had gut buttons that said you know it said we've always done it this way with a line through but this, this is a, <laughs> that was a great example of, yes. of we've always done it this way and no one's going in and saying how do we how do we make these trains go faster because right now they're at capacity and, and part of it is capacity if you get onto a, a Riverside line train um, I, I usually that's the one I take most at rush hour uh, if you get under a Riverside line train going either direction at rush hour, it is, it, it's, it's a sardine can. Um, there are the issues of, uh, of, of trains getting, getting bunched, but even still, that, that's at capacity. But if you could get 10% more trains over the line because you had all-door boarding and you had, um, or, or maybe fair prepayment or something, if you could get trains over the line faster, then that would allow you to you know, to, to reduce some of that and maybe put more people on. And, and if you had faster trains, more people are going are gonna to ride. What about the central subway? I mean, is that, like, is that workable at this point? Like, are we, can we get any more trains through there? Can we get the current number of trains through there? I think yes. the central subway hasn't been workable for about 50 years, for, for about 90 years. Um, the, I was having a discussion with a coworker. Uh, the central subway was designed, and it's sort of people say, oh, well, nothing's changed on the Green Line since 1897. Well, the central subway was designed for 25-foot trolley cars, and those were most of the cars in 1897 using it were 25 feet long. A three-car train of LRVs is nine times that long, and a two-car train is six times that long. So you have you have an order of magnitude bigger vehicles using it. Even if you look at you know a two-car PCC train that they're running in the 50s was it was only 100 feet. So you have much bigger trains. You could go to three cars on all, on all the lines, and you could get somewhat more capacity. Uh, you'd need more vehicles to do that. Um, but this, the central subway is, I, I mean, it, it's the most heavily used light rail line in the country, uh, especially per mile because it's shorter than most. And you're, it's, it's, it's operating as a subway line, but it's operating with vehicles with stairs and relatively narrow profiles and relatively low capacity. And it, you know, it doesn't. Work. It, it it works surprisingly well for what it is for for a line with these terribly sharp quarter curves at Boylston and for something that's 117 years old. Now, I will I will defend the central subway in the sense that um, at least as far as sig- a sig- upgrading the signaling system, which um, we've said before would cost somewhere on the order of mm, the same amount as the entire South Coast Rail. Um, uh, or sorry, the old colony lines or South Coast, no, the South Coast Rail Project, which is like $700 million. Um, $700 million more than the MBTA can afford right now in either debt or any capital funding that can be can be pulled politically. So um, I, they, they've said that they can eke out more capacity um, by removing the stops and by making the trains flow more fluidly. Uh, the other issue, as you've mentioned, as you've alluded to, is the fact that, you know, the trains have steps, there's uh, design flaws in terms of the number of doors on the train and and, uh, and 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 really how how fast you can get people on and off those trains. Um, I would definitely say that trains do seem to de- trains do seem to deboard or uh, what's what's a more technical a less technical a light people tend to alight and board. Um, 
the the low the low floor type eight trains uh, than the, the the ones with stairs, but. It's, it's it's all down to timing in seconds. Uh, I know in London they do have very very tight headways and and crush loads almost all the time. And the the biggest thing there, and going back to the order the hierarchy of uh, organization before electronics before concrete, you really le- could legitimately could have T inspectors at those stations guiding people and not just pushing them in like like you know in Japan but courteously saying this train is legitimately has been here for 2 minutes could you please take the next train could you wait you know hold having people stop at the, having you know, having people courteously say you know please let the next train let let the next train go um, there's another train literally behind it you can look down the tunnel and see it um, you know, it's it's small things like that 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 add up to more time and more capacity. I, I like your London example because it, it basically sounds like it, it's a similar situation where if you want to add a percent or you want to add a percent um, increased ridership to the Green Line, you have to add a percent of capacity somewhere because it's it's pretty much around the clock. You know, pretty it, you know not all hours, but you've got st- lots of students on that line, so they're not taking it just at uh, peak rush hour, yeah. uh, like some other lines. It's not know? a commuter line. Exactly, it's not a commuter. <laughs> line. It's, it, it really is an all day and all night line, especially with the Red Sox and things like that. I mean, there's pretty much any time, even even Sunday afternoons, you know, Saturday evenings, like that thing can be packed any given minute you want to get on the train. Um, the the green line. Uh, one other thing is is hopefully within apparently the next month, but who knows? But they've actually made good progress on this. We will have the actual time, so you will know. You'll be able to stand in a stop and say, "Know when the next train is coming." That's one of the issues with the green line, is that there there are often the times when you go down and let's say you're waiting for a C car and you have a B E D E D B B D E D and the, the next C train is nowhere to be found now sometimes if a, a pro tip here is that if there's a Red Sox game and you're going west of Kenmore you're going above ground take any car to Kenmore because a lot of the DNC trains will loop around on the loop at Kenmore um which I which has stung me once when I waited for about 20 minutes uh, it was about 11 at night I was pretty out of it and then I realized oh there's a Red Sox game Got on a B car, and then there's a bunch, a bunch of trains looping there. Um, but knowing that will allow you to, you know, it, let, let's say that you're waiting for a D train, and you, you walk into the station, there's a full D train there. You pull out your phone, and it says, you know, the next D train's in three minutes, and you can see that it's not a figment of someone's imagination. Or somebody's lying or whatever, yeah. Well, but you look, that's the standard line. There'll be another train just right behind right, us, right, we've right. all heard Which that one before. Sometimes, you know, you've heard it enough when it's not the case that you don't trust it. But if you can look at your phone, this is where technology helps, and you, you're at Arlington, and you know that there's a D train at Park, You'll say, okay, that was probably not a fewer people on it, and I'm not going to... And yes. I think that if 10% of the people do that or look up at a board, it says D-Train and however long, and I hope yep. that you know bigger signboards there to have more information of what trains are coming, that will help a lot, I yep. think, on the green line. Is, is there any hope that when, when the extension is done uh, in, in 2020... That that will be the opportunity to increase capacity all over the line. That, that'll be one less budget item that the T has to worry about funding, because uh, that'll be one. What is it? The two point three billion finished and done with with the green line in the, in that extension. So then they can focus their political will and, <laughs> and advocacy to. I think that's wishful thinking, and I think that the green line extension is going to make capacity issues worse. That that, that would that would be what I would assume would happen. But I, I also I mean I know they're buying more cars. I don't know if they're going to buy enough to. 
improve things. Um, yeah. But I, I do wonder if that's a chance for them to look at the you know standard operating procedures basically and say, oh, yeah. we've got a new extension. Let's just look at everything. Well, um, so to loop back to the the capital uh, like the capital view of of, of fixing this problem, the the concrete and the electronics, um, the the T. It is on their radar. Uh, Twenty years from now, they will broach the subject of, okay, now we want to replace all of the trains all at once. None of this piecemeal stuff because we are getting Type Nines, but we're only getting twenty-four of them, and we are getting all of the Type Sevens, the older ones from Japan, completely rebuilt, uh, and then the Type Eights eventually. I don't know what we're going to do with them, but uh, the, the the long view is uh, first. First, get the Green Line extension complete, then full fleet re- replacement with something longer, something more like maybe one one point five the length of the train. So that way, um, the you know that's uh, so that way that we can Low we can effectively exactly. So if we can effectively have three car trains all the time without having to pay three people um, yeah, and figuring out what else we need to do to to make what do we need to do to get like modern light rail vehicles. Right. To work in the system, well, the we big, have to rebuild or whatever. Right, because the big thing right now, as I've mentioned previously about the Green Line updates, they are currently doing a power studies um, power studies analysis, and that falls squarely in the lines of of three car trains and larger capacity. Because right now it is logistically difficult to get three car trains because you don't want to blow out a section of track and overload it with, you know, six, six, you know, three car trains all in one, all in one go. Cause as we've mentioned before, you know, the trains were smaller, they were lighter, they had, they consumed less electricity. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not like our trains were becoming SUVs, but we are legitimately asking more from the green line and there's more technology, more electronics, less things running on pneumatics, which, you know, uh, some older people, some older you know, uh, octogenarian transit aficionados <laughs> might say, "I love my pneumatics, but you know, electro- electronic is really the way that it's going." And and that power system upgrade can also is also the gateway to signal systems upgrade, uh, which also is the you know seeds the idea uh, or, or even makes way for uh, fiber optics through the tunnels, which then further em- empowers that whole. Uh, overview of the system, kind of like in uh, the Muni in San Francisco, in their, in their central subway, they do have giant screens that show the layout of the subway and where the trains are, so that way... Yeah. Uh, we have a fact, blue line in a couple of spots. Yeah. 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 All right, but I'm going to get this because we got to keep moving. Um, any final words on the green line? Uh, I was just going to say that the, the capacity, someone said that the, the extension might make it worse. I think it actually sort of might make it better because you won't have sort of these weird deadhead runs to yes. North Station and Wheatsmere. Right now, the capacity is North Station, especially Government Center. It's the trans- Green Line being a collector and distributor. And so with more of that run-through traffic, I think that those trains will, you know, those people will be getting off as other people get on. Hopefully. I like that. Yeah. Cool. All right, so let's talk, speaking of uh, crowded, slow metal objects, uh, let's talk about buses here. Um, yes, <laughs> we we uh, you know you, one of the things that we we talked about I think in the last show a little bit um, we at least mentioned it um, is you had a great post area on uh, on Route seventy and seventy A. Um, <laughs> this is something I've been thinking about for quite a while. When I worked at the T, I, I had had to go out there a bunch of times, and I literally you know you look at the map and you just you don't expect anything like what you see out there. Um, so tell us about the seventy seventy A. So um, the seventy is. I just find it bizarre. If you look at the, 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 the way that the T's buses are, most of them are old streetcar routes or old streetcar routes with small extensions. 
Um, if you look at other cities, I, I spent time in Minneapolis, and there, often many of the streetcar routes will run the streetcar route, and then they will branch out three or four times. So you have the 14A and the 14C and the 14F and the 14N, and they'll each operate a different headway, and then they'll provide trunk service through the city, and then they'll go the other way. It's confusing. It's weird for headways. It's weird for loading. Luckily, not that many people use the buses out there, so it doesn't get really that bad. Um, but the, the T generally hasn't done that to their credit, except for the 70. So the 70 bus was originally the Watertown to uh, Central Square car line, the streetcar line. Um, 1950, I believe it was replaced with a, a trackless, and 1961 was converted to diesel. Um, and then, and, and, but it still ran at that point. It was like any other line. It was like the 71, the 73. It was three miles long. It ran sort of down an urban arterial street. People got on the bus. They got, out, got to Central. Then they went to Central Square, got on the red line. Yeah, same thing on the way going out. The Middlesex in Boston was the suburban transit uh, provider in Waltham, Watertown, uh, Newton, and, and sort of that area. And it ran a line, a separate line from Watertown to Waltham. Uh, out to Cedarwood. Uh, I'm not even sure if it originally went to Cedarwood. It, it, it ran sort of the outside portion of that line. Sometime in the 70s, they merged that into that line. So that became a double line with multiple loading points. Then you also had the arsenal, so people would get on in Waltham and go to the arsenal. People were going from the arsenal to central. There's a lot of sort of cross-traffic on that line. Then at some point, they put the, the 70A onto that as well, which was originally the Middlesex and Boston Waltham to Lexington line which was at some point truncated just to operate in Waltham. And they didn't really merge it in particularly well, so you have these weird headways. You'll have a 24-minute wait, and then two buses will come at the same time. And if there were some random deadhead runs going on, that would be one thing. But the 70 is one of the... It's actually one of the, I just did this calculation because someone asked for it online, but if you... The, the T has a document and... Um, it's the service planning document. What? The blue book? Or no, no, it's actually something much more arcane than the blue book. <laughs> um, it's a service planning document. It has some really cool information, such as the net cost per passenger for each line. Um, they also had the riders per trip on that line, but those numbers made absolutely no sense. So I took the ridership. I went into the GTF file. I was doing this yesterday morning, uh, or this morning, at some point. Uh, went into the GTFS file, pulled out the number of trips, and... Um, if you look at the number of passenger riders per trip, which I think is a pretty good metric of, you know, even a longer trip, if you have a lot of people getting on and off, that's going to add uh, add to the amount of time uh, of that trip. So the most riders per trip is on the 66, which coincidentally has 66 riders per trip. Um, and the top five ri uh, riders per trip are the 66, 28, 1, 39, and 57, or five of the top six, which coincidentally are the top five ridership right. lines by ridership. Uh, all about twelve to 15,000. And then the uh, no, but number two is the 70 bus, 61 riders per trip. Um, it ha has many fewer trips, but it has as many riders per trip. So you have a lot of people getting on and off, a lot of stops, a lot of added time, added complexity. If you start off with even headways, you're already asking for trouble when that happens because you have an inconsistent load, you know, inconsistent loading and stopping. But when you start off with inconsistent headways, you're at it asking for a ton of trouble because that bus that is a little more crowded is going to make more stops and go a little slower, and then you're going to get punching. And then once you get punching everything, you know, it, it, you have, even if you have a, the average headway is maybe 15 minutes, where you have a 10 minutes and then 25 and then 12 and then 23 minute, the effective headway is 25 because you probably have two buses coming every 25 minutes. 
And the one bus, the 66 bus, it's because, you know, th- that, that happens because there's traffic and because of just... But the 70 bus, a lot of it is just because it's poorly planned. And there were people in Watertown who were, you know, asking for it to be better planned. And, and I sort of looked at it, and, and she's like, well, we don't have the money to spend. And I said, well, I'm the amateur planner, which is, goes back six years. I'll do it for free, and, and, and did... And I and I have a friend who um, has been taking that bus to work for, uh, I think she said eight years, um, from Cambridge. And and the other thing is, and I assume the T's knows this, but from you know, I think a lot of people think, oh well, you know, on the outbound buses, we don't have to worry about it. Who takes that? Those buses are as full as the inbound buses, um, even though people have to wait on a random street corner. You know, all the other buses that serve terminals have sort of at least an overhang. You're waiting on a narrow, narrow, a narrow sidewalk, and I walk by this, this is right by my house. I live in Cambridge Park. I walk by this a narrow sidewalk on Green Street, with no over, no overhang. If it's rainy, everyone has an umbrella up, waiting for this bus that may not ever come. Um, but you know, you have 50 people getting on the bus going outbound in the morning, which is not, you know, these outbound buses which are serving the arsenal, with the, which has a top, you know, there are a lot of a lot of jobs out there blue collar and white collar and it's it's a very useful bus for people It'd be a lot more useful if it came on a regular schedule mm-hmm. so yeah i mean I, th- I actually take the 70 quite often and uh, you know i've noticed a lot of these things that yeah it's it's i always thought the 70 should be in that group of and actually if you I, I don't i don't really agree with the t's methodology of of figuring out what are their busiest routes because they just like say oh we have this many total borings on a weekday and it doesn't really take into account like by yeah. mile or whatever but putting that aside if you if you use that methodology, you see that the you know you have those fifteen key routes that they've always focused on for having you know better service and everything, and then uh, and then you have the seventy as I think it's number sixteen, and so you know but it's there's there's weird gaps at night. There's like a one hour gap at night, and there's like it's just a, a very weird. And I just but I, I feel like the seventy some of these issues that we're talking about with the seventy seventy eight are sort of. Um, very pretty much the same as a lot of the issues that we're dealing with in, in these other busy routes, 57 and 66 and the 111 and all these, um, that, you know, you have this issue of bunching where if, you know, if you have your bus, if you have the the, the headway is like two minutes and then, you know, 15 or, or, or even if it's supposed to come every 10 minutes and it actually comes, you know, it varies and you know that, you know, it usually takes five minutes, but it might be as long as 25 minutes. Well, now when I go to work in the morning, I got a plan that it's going to take me 25 minutes, yeah. and it makes my commute a lot longer. So I think, I mean, to, to what extent do you think these are sort of a microcosm of the issues that we're dealing with, just large scale? Well, I think a lot of it's capacity. The T doesn't have any more buses at rush hour. You know, it, one of the things I propose is, is I, and I actually go through this, um, to, to take the 70A and separate that in. You could interline the 70A and the 56. Uh, I'd rather the 556, which is an express bus into Boston. Um, you would probably lose service on a couple of short little streets in Waltham. Uh, people would get a, a direct ride downtown. It, it, you would no longer have that. One of the reasons the headways are so weird is that you have these buses coming in off a different route and they're not well interlined. Um, the so it, it's a capacity issue. Whenever you do, you can't say, "Oh, well, let's use have put two more buses on the route because the T doesn't have two more buses at rush hour." Oh, to clarify, interlining uh, to say that you've got two bus two routes merging into the same street and you're kind of interleaving them yep. one after the other, so that way, uh, sort of. Well, sort of. I actually yeah. use it twice <laughs> in two different ways. So yeah, yeah. we clarify that. Right now, what the 70A does is sort of have a have it's branches. So you have the branch up to North Wall, uh, North Waltham, and the branch to Cedarwood, which run on uneven headways. So three buses go to Cedarwood for every bus that goes to North Waltham. 
what I was saying you could do is take the seven, the, the, the branch that goes up north, combine it with the, the 556 express bus. You still have sort of an ungodly long route, but at least that route is not trying to provide every 10-minute urban service, which is what the 70 tries right. to do. So that's your solution without adding any buses? Without adding any buses, um, you, you take basically the two buses that run on the 70A and, and combine them in with the 556. You might even have an efficiency where you save a bus at some times of day. And then the 70, or you take that bus and put it on the 70, and then you could run the 70 every 12 minutes. That sounds like an organizational issue. Again, going back to that hierarchy of organization before electronics, before concrete. Yep. Which, so that's, that, that saves the team money effectively. And also, as you mentioned, breaking up the route also reduces the, the incidence of um, weird, weird bunching. And, and, uh, and it provides yeah. better service. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that's what you need to do. It, it's like we've always done it this way because the route has been this way for 35 years. Well, let's go back and say, if it's not working, what can we do? And, and, and that sort of was staring me in the face after I looked at it for a while. Um, so I, I'm not sure. For uh, full, sort of full disclosure, I work uh, with the Charles River TMA in Cambridge. We operate mm-hmm. the Easy Ride Shuttle, um, which is a frequent shuttle bus with a con- that goes from North Station to um, Cambridge. We're close to 3,000 passengers a day, which would put us in about the middle of T-Routes. Um, it's sort of a different level of service because we it's only at rush hours and we have people sort of watching it because it's funded by the mostly real estate companies in in that area it was sort of a there were many different shuttles sort of what you see in south uh, in the in the seaport right now where each company has its own shuttle about 15 years ago they said well that that doesn't make sense let's have one shuttle serve each of the companies so we're at right now we're at seven minute headway um and in the morning we have especially in the morning we have full buses at leaving North Station. Three trains roll in, we'll have a full bus that'll leave early, the next bus will roll in, 40 people get on, full bus going out. Um, we have the same bunching issues. Just today, there is a, and, and we have the next bus, we can watch the buses in real time. Sometimes, if you have buses every seven or eight minutes, if one bus leaves a minute late and hits a red light, the next bus leaves a minute early and doesn't hit a red light, all of a sudden you have four minute headway. Now that first bus is running late, it's gonna, and, it, and it, car- it has to pick up a couple more passengers, it hits another red light, all of a sudden the next bus is two minutes behind it and picking up no one and going past stops, the first one stopped at. Well, then you have a bus that's six minutes late, bus that's two minutes early, and you have people tweeting at you and saying, well, why, why isn't the bus here yet? And there's really nothing you can do about that, and our route's two and a half, well, three miles long. Nothing you can do with, about it unless you... Unless you have signal priority exactly. and, and things yeah. like that. But there's also, and, and this actually loops way back to the sort of capacity on the red line, capacity mm-hmm. on other, there are very much diminishing returns. Now, if you have a 10-minute headway, a 12-minute headway and go to a 10-minute headway, you're effectively adding, what, six buses an hour or to five to six, you're adding 20% capacity. But if you're at seven-minute headway and you go to six-minute headway, which is nine, eight and a half to ten or however, or six to five, which is, um, you know, it's a smaller addition of, of capacity. But you're also, when you're running buses or, or even trains, if, if especially if you have uneven loads, you it's much more easy, much yeah. more easy, much easier to have those bunch. If... If I may plug this here real quick, um, if you if you are into gaming, um, I would suggest uh, Cities in Motion 2. They are not paying us for this, but <laughs> Cities in Motion 2 is actually really great at demonstrating this in kind of like a, 
uh, a playful environment. It is a business simulator. You do kind of need to go a little bit further into into actually learning how to play the game. But once you get a hang of it, you can see that very easily. Uh, I've, I I had a bus route that was actually really long in the game, and it actually had it had a lot of uh, it had to go through a lot of stops and um, and had really uneven loads. The more buses I added. The 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 worst bunching I had, yep. and uh, up to up to the point where I uh, and this is clearly a game thing. It wouldn't happen in real life until the point where the the bus shelter could literally not store any more of the buses. If if like say at nighttime the buses um, would. Uh, there would be reduced service, or I would reduce the service, or there would be reduced passengers. The buses would start zooming through the route, and then they'd get back to the shed, uh, and then they'd just be sticking out in the street. So obviously that wouldn't happen in real life, but well, you talk about I mean, you talk about something like the one eleven, where right. this is like a chronic issue, where you just you just literally, I mean, you're running two minute headways, or what's that? That one that Vancouver that we talk about, the ninety nine B line in Vancouver, where they're running, they're carrying one hundred and sixty thousand people a day on on a bus route. And they're running, I mean, literally, they just have buses back-to-back. I mean, you think of a red line shuttle. It's essentially the same thing yeah. when you have yeah. a planned red line shuttle. I mean, Although, I, I do think people prefer to be on a bus that's bunching as opposed to... Uh, Not on a bus? Waiting for a bus <laughs> that is supposed <laughs> yes, to be there but, in three but minutes. But if you're waiting minutes. for a bus, if a bus is bunched, you're going to be waiting for a bus for a long time. Right. And most of the people are going to get on that first bus, not on the second one. Yes. Ari, how long... Because how, you were talking about the, the routes um, that you're working professionally, only three miles. How long are the routes, um, the 70 and the 70A? 70 is about nine and a half, and the 70 is like 15. It goes all the way from Central Square all yeah, the way up. Yes. Is that, is that the longest non-express route we have? Uh, I think the 34E is longer, but it's of, oh, of yeah, sort of the high, and I think the 350, but but those have service every half hour, every hour. Of the high-frequency routes, which I'm going to lump it in because it... It's 15 to 20. It should probably be more like 12. It's probably one of the longer, if not the longest. So to kind of distill this conversation, it, it, it's really about and, and taking and, and we've we've taken a very very close in look at Route 70. Um, what this really is about is again uh, bringing back bringing back the the, the vision of, of uh, Rich Davies' button that he he, he wore and that he t- tried to get everybody else to wear. Yep. The uh, the we've we've but we've always done it this way. Strike through. Uh, I'm sure he'll he'll if he's even reading if he's is he, if he's even listening to this on his vacation right now, and I think in Australia. Keep then. dreaming. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, the 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 fact of the matter is, um, there is a lot. There's still a lot to be had to be eked out from operational capacity. Um, but as as Jeremy said, it's a lot of it. Sometimes is internal internal. Uh, uh, inertia um, to get things started, and then also the fact that there just aren't that many T employees to execute these these types of. Is that well, well, you Ari, do you have another out? no additional buses solution that you'd propose if the T asked you tomorrow? Um, the one I'd start with is seventy. The another thing I would do is the one in the CT one. I would, I would get rid of the one in the CT one. I'd make it all the CT one. Um, the the problem with so the you're C- saying that's where you get more buses to add. To well, you this just route. take all of it. No, to the seventy or to the. To I the take 70, all the 70. no the seventy. Oh, if you had buses, I wouldn't add those to seventy. I would. The one bus is um, uh, Dominic Trebone, who works yes. for the T, who is, does fantastic work. He had a graphic up at the Moving Together conference mm-hmm. of for and the, the one bus has one of the lowest subsidies per per passenger. You're like moving back it. You, the the average fare paid on a bus is sixty six cents. You know the actual fare is a dollar sixty, but because people have link passes and they have transfers, the average fare is only sixty six cents, which means that 
Um, if it was a, if people were paying a dollar sixty, the buses would almost make money. If people were paying two dollars, the two ten, the trains would break even if everyone paid two dollars and ten cents per trip. But the average person only pays a dollar eight per trip. I'm sorry if you could if you could reason that a little bit better for our for our listeners. Sure. So. Um, and it actually goes back back in 1940. If you got on a train, you put a, a nickel in the in the fare box, and you got on the train. And if you took four trips per day, you put four nickels in. Um, right now, the the fares are two dollars and ten cents, but two thirds to three quarters of fares, if not more, are paid for by, on a monthly basis. A lot of the other ones are paid for with at student rates, at uh, at elderly rates, at, at various other. Discounts and then maybe twenty percent are, are paid by. You know what? What I use is I pay by trip because I don't. I bike a lot and I use the T five. So you're saying people who have a monthly or a weekly pass, they tend to use it more because they have the incentive because they're not paying per trip. Sure, and and monthly and weekly passes are fantastic because it gets people. It, it allows people to 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 use that. But what it means is that the the, the, the again this is in one of these documents. I'll send a link to you guys so you can put it on to um, the blog at some point because mm-hmm. it's. It's some long PDF, something or other. The average fare paid for the subway is a dollar eight, which is about half of what the, the actual fare, the quoted fare is. Mm-hmm. And the average fare for buses is sixty six cents. So um, the subsidy, the right, right now the subsidy, and the actual there are silver line buses that make money, um, and the one bus at certain times of day basically makes money. Um, and, and what he had is a chart showing 15 minutes, for each 15 minutes, how much money the bus took in. And so there's certain times of day when the one bus is taking in more money right now than it, than it costs to operate. But those are the times of day when the buses are completely packed full of people. And you have the CT1s and the 1s, and they don't really operate in concert. And there are actually not that many stops that the one bus does make that the CT1 doesn't. Oh, yes. Um, because, and, and the one bus is basically operates it, it, it's it's sort of a rapid transit line except it's not rapid between, <laughs> yeah, exactly. between because it goes from Harvard well the red line to central to the red line uh, and then it goes to the green line at Heinz and then the orange line and then uh, then the green line again at, at Symphony and the orange line a block later and then it goes to if you extended it to Andrew it would go to the red line so it sort of it makes that arc and it connects all the except for the blue line it connects all the lines well that was the point of the CT1 was to be one of the f- initial phases of the the circle the ring, yeah, right. ring. But yeah. the CT1, the, the CT1 duplicates the one, and, exactly. and it doesn't do it that well. So I would say get rid of some of the frivolous stops. I know some people are going to have to walk a quarter mile to their stop, but then you most of those stops already have a T stop, which means they already have a fare machine. So you could have all door prepaid boarding. You that bus sorely needs sixty foot sixty foot buses on it because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it has the same number of passengers per run as the thirty nine uh, and twenty eight, thirty nine and twenty eight, which have those sixty foot buses, yes. if not more passengers. And and it's not the sixty six going through Brookline. You probably couldn't put a sixty footer on. Maybe you could, but the, you could the if you one is to. if you really wanted to, and you yeah, the one is would be easier. And then you run it more, and then you. And, but the other thing about the one is there's a few places where you could put in queue jumps and signal priority. Not even every, every signal, but um, Central Square, you could have it go down the left lane, going going westbound towards Harvard. Go down the west, the left lane, which is the left turn only on Pearl Street. Have a signal there when the bus gets there. It jumps in front and goes in, of, yep. of the traffic. So a few queue jumps like that. All of a sudden, you take out a lot of what causes all the bunching. Yep. And you don't have the CT1 on the one, and the people saying, oh, I'm going to wait for the CT1, or I'm not, and getting on, and there's an empty bus behind a full bus, or the three ones together. And the other thing I would say there is, and, and this is, goes really into unions and bureaucracy and such, 
But um, take take someone and maybe even an outsider. Not not that I'm saying that uh, that I, I'm better at this than the T inspectors because I'm sure that there are a lot of them. And and for most T employees, driving a bus is a really hard job. Yep. And we, we you're, you're dealing with and, and one of the things we go back to you're, you're mentioning the, this game Cities in Motion. In as much as those games and those models and, and everyone who's saying, oh, we're going to use technology to improve everything, you're still dealing with human beings. Yes. And you're dealing with a lot of human beings. You're dealing with human beings in cars and on bikes and, 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 and all the passengers on the bus and people who have a fare problem and people who are yelling at the driver. And that's always going to be a problem. And that's not something that technology, we don't, we have not passed the Turing test. And this is why I'm skeptical of, of, of oh, the cities are going to be taken over by driverless cars. Like, well, when they can understand what a pedestrian is going to do, who's talking on their phone and not paying attention and when they're going to step off the curb, then that's great. But if you had, if you had a, if you had a driverless car and it had to obey all the rules of, well, if there's a pedestrian with X number of feet, I'm not going to go, you'd probably never get through half the streets of Boston. San Mateo, California, wherever they're driving around, they can probably do that. Because um, here oh, the pedestrians, if you're not going, they're just going to keep walking yeah, in front of you. I, I think you have to break a lot of traffic yeah. rules to get anywhere yeah. at rush hour. Yeah, I mean, I was, we can talk, we will definitely that's touch totally on that. Different. Because that's actually a major issue, a major thing that's, that's making the rounds right now is, hey, yeah, so driverless cars are cool, but driverless buses actually may, might help us um, abate costs uh, with suburban routes. But that's a... So, right, yeah, exactly. But the, most of the riders are urban. Um, but would be to have a dispatcher at rush hour yep. whose sole job was to watch the one bus. Yeah. And someone, and with, with the line that we have, we actually, it's, it's easier because we have a couple of segments that generally have low ridership. And we are sometimes able to turn buses or to short-turn buses. We have nine buses on our route. If four of them got stuck... You're talking about the easy ride bus. Oh, the easy ride bus, sorry. Um, If four of them get stuck at North Station because some state trooper decided to start directing traffic and and it's a total gridlock, sometimes what we'll do is we will get people... We'll have two buses near each other. We'll get the three people on the first bus off and onto the second bus. Then we can turn that bus around and have them go back on the route so that we provide service to that. Because if they all go yep. get stuck, we have nine buses in one place, the rest of the route isn't getting served. Absolutely. You could do that on the one bus. If you have two buses bunched together in Central Square, you have them both pull in, everyone from one gets onto the other, that one loops around and goes back the other way, so you don't have that service gap. But that's something where you really need to... It, it's not really something... I, I've long since been planning a, a, a blog post that's entitled tentatively the art and science, but mostly art of a short turn, where you need to know who's driving which bus. You need to know how well that driver knows the route and the roads. If they're a new driver, you might not want them taking a deadhead move, going which a deadhead out of service, out of service off the route. Um, they might get lost. You see this with the T when, they, when there's some disruption and they pull a bunch of drivers to run from you know, Park Street to Harvard because someone jumped off a red, red line platform. Um, they... A lot of those drivers, they're not pulling drivers who know that route. That's not a, a, a route. They're pulling drivers who were you know, going back to one of the yards, and they said, hey, you want some overtime? Drive to Park Street and go to Harvard. Well, those drivers don't know that route, which isn't a T route. If they don't know the roads that well, they're going to get lost. And that's really not, a, n- not anything that can be fixed because it's, just, it's, it's, it's hard for them. They're dealing with a bunch of people who are already pissed off and yelling and saying, go this way, go that way. So... You need to really know which drivers you have, know what drivers you have, know what streets that the buses can turn. A 40-foot bus can't necessarily take a side street. So there's a lot of intricacies there where you sort of have to, and it's sort of fun at the end of the day. I get to watch the screen and, and, and then try to solve problems when my brain is sort of 
winding down for the day. It's like a, one of those puzzles with 16 pieces, and there's like one, and you have to move them around, or like a Rubik's Cube. So I sort of feel like that's how <laughs> an urban bus route works. Well, um, so to, uh, to quickly uh, kind of wrap that up and then advance it forward, because uh, we are running <laughs> a little late, long. Um, We're always the, running over time. Well, so, so uh, those issues we've actually talked about in the last post in, in the sense of that there's no disaster planning, or there, there's, there's seemingly no disaster planning, not disaster planning, but like emergent contingency yeah. planning for these things and that that a lot of that's also overarching like uh the t first in order to get there to that point where we have the t saying oh yes we'll turn buses around mid-route we have to get them to that point where they say we will do this even though it makes some of our customers angry because the, that is the argument that we get back uh, at, at pushback when we div- when we do suggest that to operators or, or management um who who are the people who who set these policies uh, we have to. They they have to be the ones who arrive at that decision. This is beneficial for the system, and this is beneficial for the customers. And we're doing it in. We're we're doing it for for your for your benefit, right. as opposed to. Oh, we now have, we have to be sensitive to every single customer who now feels jilted because they're being taken off the bus. We're doing it for the overall benefit. We might jilt three people so that the sixty people right. across the street can have a bus in two minutes instead of right. fifteen. Exactly. So yeah. So so having management that can commit to that, and also having management that that does have contingency. So like where, for example, if somebody if something does happen, like on the orange line or the red line, or any incident in the system, there's a there's a book or. Uh, uh, an electronic device that a driver can pull out and say, okay, this is, so emergency, emergency plan C is in effect, follow this route, this is your, uh, so that that's going to be, the, that would be ideally the next generation heads up display yep. that also includes um, stuff that the drivers already see right now, which is how late they are. <laughs> uh, and all Sometimes that early. Stuff. Yeah, or yeah. early. Yeah. Uh, so they don't act on, but that's kind of Kind of looping that to our next subject about ComEv, construction, I don't know if we have a little bit of time of that yeah, to talk about maybe, this. Maybe we want to put that off the next time? Um, we... Yeah, so, but I mean, yeah. kind of segueing. Can we come that. back to Watertown, though? Sure, sure, yeah. To, yeah. Because that's where we right. started, and right. <clears throat> we had some suggestions, and and the other suggestion, so basically, it seems like the big picture here is uh, there's a few things the MBTA can do, whether or not they decide to do this, and there was another article last week where the city council in Watertown was going back to the MBTA, and some were even suggesting they should sue the MBTA because they're, they're taking too long to figure this out. But, you know, at what point does uh, a municipality say we're going to uh, hire our own easy ride buses um, and we're going to have our own um, you know, people running yeah. logistics making sure that our citizens are being, you know, getting where they need to go regardless of, you know, we're going to fill in those gaps in the MBTA's routes? That's a really good question. Uh, you've sort of seen that happen in, in uh, D.C. where they have the D.C. circulators, in L.A. where they have the dash buses. And I thought the circulator was run by Wamata. Um, I think it might be, but it's sort of by the city. Run to, I think it's run by the city. By the city. It's okay. run by the city. It's operated by a private company, but it's it's run by the city, and, and I don't know all the politics of it, but basically it was like there was issues with the Metro bus, and so they yeah. just built their own thing. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, it, that's a really good question. Uh, you sort of saw the last iteration about 20 years ago, the Lexpress, the Newton Nexus, that didn't really work that well. I don't think they were planned that well. Um you know, if you see five or ten years down the road that Cambridge puts its own, you know, puts more of a, a bus system in there, I think there's some talk. Um, the, 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 I think there's going to be more local funding for transit coming up in the next five or ten years where you see more local districts saying we need to, um, w- this is a problem. I think one, one of the things that I, I think isn't being talked about in Cambridge, I live and work in Cambridge, so I don't want to be too Cambridge-centered, but 
the red line being at capacity, the red line has just about, we're talking that the, the T ridership has doubled or, or not, that was, was up again. The red line has doubled since 1989. 1989 was when they first had six-car trains running, um, and that's as far back as I can find data, too, uh, as, as it turns out. Um, the, the red line is up to um, the uh, 300,000, over 300,000 passengers a day, um, and it, it's getting to the point of diminishing returns. And new trains with wider doors with better propulsion systems will, will help. But you still have, and, and this is sort of looks look the same as sort of the 70 bus, the easy ride shuttle, really any busy bus route. You know, people say, oh, why don't you run it every two minutes? And, and, and in theory, you could look in the past, they ran the trains more frequently when they were just running from Harvard back in the 60s. Well, the trains that they have now that, you know, you have a train that's going from Elwif to Davis to Porter, you have these heavy, heavy stations, so it gets to Harvard, um, it's already half full, or three, two, three quarters full. You have people pushing on and off. Harvard's a, a, a transfer station, people getting on and off. It takes longer. Then you throw in the fact that, let's say, a commuter train rolls into Porter, 350 people get off, go down the, es- the escalator, and are getting on that red line train. You have that train at capacity. If you're running every trains every three minutes, the train behind it is going to catch up to it, and you have those those bunches build up in the subways too. And there's so there's really you you will probably add capacity. It's not to the point where you say that you add buses and you almost and everything goes slower. It will go somewhat slower. You'll add some capacity, but again, you won't add the same amount of capacity. And what you're really looking at is that the the the, the core transit system here, especially if you know, as, as Walsh wants to do, you add 50,000 apartment units in Boston. You add another 10 or 20 in Cambridge and Somerville with the Green Line extension and such. And most of those people wind up taking, or a lot of them wind up taking transit. Some will drive, some will walk, some will bike. You're looking at a system which has a lot of pinch points as far as capacity. You're, someone was saying earlier um, that they were there in downtown crossing, and it was just sort of a madhouse of people, um, which is uh, sort of symptomatic of there are only a certain, only... There's only X capacity, but a true track rail, railroad has very high capacity, but it's 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 limited. It's not not infinite. So at some point, you have to actually talk about you know adding to that network. And the urban ring buses on city streets, and then a bus lane every so often is not going to do that. Um, so you know, I think I think we're getting to that point. But I think to your point of at what point will towns look at it? Well, first of all, if Watertown really was worried about how the, the, their buses, they would you know put a bus lane on Mount Auburn Street and have those buses. Um, have right of way, which I don't think is going to happen, but that but that would be something you know that would be something Watertown could do a bus lane and bus lanes on on all the streets the buses operate on, um, but you know and of course just just real quick I know Watertown and the MBTA don't exactly have a great working relationship either. I mean, this has been an ongoing history. But, I mean, Watertown gives the MBTA a bus lane. Are they going to not, right. not use it? Right. Yeah. So part of it, I think it's part of it is it's just, just from that, a lot of times they feel like they feel slighted. They feel like the MBTA hasn't given them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, and, and there, there's versa. no way. That, that's definitely not the only municipality oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> in this area that has that type of relationship yep. with the T. Going, going back to our mission, our core mission as Transit Matters, I think, it, I think it, I can, it can happen politically. When there's a will, there's a way. And at the moment, there's no political will because the MBTA hasn't shown that it can implement BRT. I think it's time. I think it's high time now that the that the MBTA show that it can do something like the uh, the twenty eight X without completely feeling making the neighborhoods feel disenfranchised. Once we have something that works that isn't the silver line, a BRT 
uh, somewhere here in Boston, um, and and that's that becomes a a regional success. Then we can say then we can go to municipalities or we can get other municipalities to volunteer their road space for something like that. Because right now they don't. There's just there's no. I, I mean, the pinch point we're at capacity, and the pinch point is that. We're talking about adding, um, you know, upwards of fifty thousand. Yeah. This is just Boston, so we're talking tens of thousands, even more than fifty thousand people in the urban, the most urban areas around Boston, and there's not that type. There's not a, that type of additional planning for the T's perspective of, of hey, we're going to give you this much more funding so that you can meet this capacity. There is a five-year capital um, plan, um, and there's all kinds of things they're talking about doing, but they're not really. Those aren't meant to address this future. You know, build out of people living in the urban area. Their their plans are more of talking about addressing things that we've already been talking about for twenty years. Right, and you there know, need so. to be twenty and thirty year visions. Yeah, go looking yeah. forward. The one of, one of the issues with BRT, and, and you know, we just there's something online today of, of, of BRT is the future, and it's seventy percent. You know, grown seventy percent. That might work great in cities with wide straight streets, but you're never going to be have be able to have any kind of BRT on the 66 bus because the streets are two lanes wide. Yeah, absolutely. And most of Boston is hamstrung by the fact that they, that there are narrow streets and very limited street capacity. Yeah. Whereas if you go to a Portland or Minneapolis or a Denver, you have five lane wide streets. And if you use one of those lanes for bus, it works well, although there's not that much congestion to be with. I, I don't think, I honestly don't think that is a, I think that's a political will thing because there is clearly, there is road space for something, but it's... There's it's, right of way. There's, there's right of way. There's, right. there's road width for something, uh, but it's a matter of, uh, I mean, we legitimately probably couldn't do this on the 66, but uh, there is enough width where if we took away the parking, you could actually have like a light rail line in bet- or, or a, a, r- a right-of-way specifically for the bus. It's a matter of yeah. political will and by- it's a, it goes back to our, our overarching mission, mission of, of, you know, parking, of, of the thing, these things coming together, parking, parking policy that, that makes the neighborhood feel comfortable with, with on-street parking spaces being taken away, um, uh, and then, and then uh, people feeling like, oh, we don't need our cars all the time, so I'm okay with, with, the, with parking being taken away, because then also the bus, the, the, you know, seeing these examples, these tangible examples of, oh, they work elsewhere, but they won't work here in Boston because we're Boston, which seems to be a, a, an underlying theme of, of you know, the, the, that's, what the tea, that's, what the, that's how the T feels, and, you know, that's how people feel about, you know, Oh, why? Why should we have parking parking policy here that works for San Francisco? Why would it work here in Boston? Because San Francisco is not Boston. Boston's not San Francisco. Well, so. I, I think I agree with you, and I disagree with you. I agree with you that there, it, it's 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 really poor form to say, well, it'll never work here, so let's not try. But I disagree. You know, it, it, and yes, we could build anything anywhere, pretty yes. much. But the some of it's going. You know, for instance. Mass Ave north of Harvard Square. There's no reason when they rebuild that in some number of years that there shouldn't be a full bus lane on that. It's 80, 90, 100 feet wide. Yeah. But, and it has high ridership lines that get stuck in traffic. But there are just, you know, it, it, you could put it on the 66, but you would basically, you would, wouldn't be able to have a bike, bike lane. You'd have like a lane of traffic and then a bus lane in, in, in the middle. Um, you, so you, you, there are a lot of sacrifices you're going to have to make. It's politically going to be very, very hard on some of those routes. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take... Peter Firth has a, had a great, um, at the Liberal Street Street Talk a couple, couple, two years ago, a great talk of what you do in the section where the 39, the E train, and the 66 all share South or Huntington Avenue at that point. 
which was to sort of put a median in, get rid of parking. And for that section where you have those three heavy routes all, all stuck in traffic, you know, if you could save each each vehicle five minutes getting through there, you're going to have a very much increased capacity. So I think there, I think what what Boston needs to do in the in the short term, and, and I'm looking at, and maybe with some political changes, this is actually going to be somewhat easier to do, or or at least not a, not much harder, is look for those, you know, and this is really in the short term. But I think you need to look at the the 30 year picture of what the big thing, big picture things we need to do, yeah. and then look for like in addition to 70, look for those places where you can make a relatively small change. For relatively small dollar amounts, or, or really zero dollar amounts, other than you know new schedules and new signs, and new maps and whatever else, where you can find those efficiencies, you know whether it's signal priority, whether it's a short bus lane or a queue jump, or taking out a couple of parking spaces so the bus doesn't have to pull in and then go out around a parking a, a bulb out or something and get stuck as traffic passes it, to make those small changes that are going to make a, a, a relative, relatively small changes that'll make a relatively large difference. Right. Exactly. Or, organization before electronics yep. before concrete. I'm just yep. going to keep saying that. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess we're going to have to start wrapping up here most definitely. Um, did yeah. we have anything from the mailbag? I don't think we have time for anything in the mail. Okay. <laughs> uh, I put up a couple of events on the, on the website. I'm not going to go through them all. One, sure. one I do want to really plug real quick is um, Livable Streets is having their uh, street talk, their 10-in-1 street talk yes. on Tuesday, December 16th. Uh, I forget what time, but look it up online. Uh, Livable I, Streets. I, I, info. I will not be presenting this year, but you may have seen me there last year. Yes. Yes. Definitely, uh, yeah, check out their websites, uh, their website for uh, registration information. Um, that's also a great opportunity to become a Livable Streets member. So, It's, a, it's always a great event, Absolutely. even when I'm not there. Yeah, they have like 10 speakers. This, this is what they're doing is 10 speakers, and they each get like seven minutes or something. So it's, it's kind of like a really condensed TED Talk specifically for transportation. For transportation. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well... Time to wrap up. Thank you so much, Ari, for coming. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. I wanted to plug in, and this is pseudo transit related. Um, we've been working on a website. We it's, it's actually traffic modeling um, ties with transit because if you can, I think that and this is a whole other episode, but how people perceive traffic on roads versus tra- travel times on roads versus travel times in transit. Uh, or transit vehicles, traffichackers.com. Check it out. It's super beta. You probably won't understand it, uh, but it has some fun charts and data. So. Awesome. And we'll have to have you come back. That. This is always more to talk about. Oh, yes. So Cool. All right. Um, so you can find us online at transitmatters.info and, uh, uh, like, what, is, what was it, uh, amateurplanner.blogspot.com. Get it right. And where, where, on, where are you on Twitter? You have, like... I'm, uh, you, my, my personal, I, I probably have some... If I pull up my phone, there's, like, 10 accounts on it. The one I use is at Offsevit, which is my last name. O, F is in Foxtrot, S is in Sierra, E, V is in Victor, I, T. Cool. Uh, you can find me at Critical Transit. Oh, I'm at... <laughs> I'm the one who runs Transit Matters, but uh, I also tweet at Digital Guy, which you might have seen here or there. And I tweet at Hatchback31. All right. Uh, And you can write to us, feedback at transitmatters.info. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Please write to us. (laughs) Yeah, please do. We like reading email.